0: Hello and welcome to the Mondebank History of Scotland podcast. I am your host, my name is Daniel Downey. I am a stand-up comedian based in Edinburgh, which at the time of the recording of this podcast it remains the capital city of Scotland. Uh, despite President Johnson doing the road's attempt to kill us all, we have not been turned into like District 13. We've not been Katniss Everdeen. We've not been fifed. You know, Fife's always had a bit of an ear of the old District 12 about it. Uh... No, this is a, And welcome to the Montebank History of Scotland podcast. This is a series of podcasts aimed at taking you through Scotland's history from somewhere around the first century AD to, to close to present day. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, my name is Daniel Downey. I'm a stand up comedian. I am not an academic historian. I should get that out the road nice and early. Uh, I am not like the other Dan's. Do you know what I mean? This is not Dan Carlin. Or, or Dan Snow, uh, I am an amateur historian, and this podcast is basically an attempt at me combining my two great passions in life. Uh, stand-up comedy and heroin. Uh, no, sorry, the other great passion in my life, history. Or Scottish history, specifically. Um, so basically in the before times, before lockdown and COVID and all the kind of shit show started, I had a, a tour company in Edinburgh called Montebank Tours, um, what I would do is I would just basically take people on comedy walking tours of the city. So I'd walk them around beautiful Edinburgh Old Town and tell them about the city and I'd try and make them laugh a wee bit, you know. The idea is that you're, you're hopefully going to learn a little and laugh a lot and that's the point of these podcasts as well. Uh, incidentally, the the series is called The Montebank History of Scotland or my, my company is called Montebank Tours because um, Montebanks were one of the first things that I read about when I started reading about Edinburgh's history. And basically, a, a Montebank was kind of like a, a 17th or 18th century street performer. But the biggest difference between a Montebank and a regular street performer is at the end of a Montebank's performance, be it like tightrope walking, fire breathing, juggling, whatever, they would sell homemade herbal remedies and potions, right? So they were essentially like performing drug dealers. And I thought, perfect, what better... What a better thing for me to name my company! I, I remain the only tour of Edinburgh where you could you can get top quality, class A drugs off of your tour guide at the end of it, you know. And so the Montebanks are what you the Montebanks were what you might describe as like a, a kind of like a snake oil salesman, right? And one of my favourite <clears throat> stories of uh, Montebanks in Edinburgh is there was a German guy called Cornelius Tilburn, right? Now, Cornelius' party piece is, what he would do is he would travel the major cities of Europe, and when he arrived at a city, he challenged the physicians there to concoct their deadliest, most potent potion, and at that point, Cornelius would then have one of his assistants drink this deadly potion. Now, I know what you're thinking, folks, surely not, Daniel, an eccentric German guy who went around... Poisoning folk? That doesn't sound like it could possibly be a thing, but it definitely was, right? And so uh, what Cornelius would do is once his uh, assistant had ingested this horrible poison, he'd come along with this kind of famous patented antidote. He'd give it to this guy, he'd be immediately revived, everything to be hunky-dory, and he'd sell bottles and bottles and bottles of this stuff. Now, Cornelius came to Edinburgh in 1695. He challenged the physicians here to concoct their deadliest, most potent potion. And I feel like we already know where I'm going with this, right? Um, When Cornelius' assistant drank the Edinburgh potion, he was killed. Deed, dead, gone, nada. You see, folks, Cornelius, he had seriously, seriously underestimated Scottish people's ability to overdose. And that there, by the way, is also the first recorded incident in Scottish history of anyone drinking Buckfast tonic wine. Now, if you don't know what Buckfast tonic wine is, folks, Bucky or the tonic, as we call it here in Scotland, uh, perhaps you're an American listening to this, right? The uh, Buckfast tonic wine is very much Scotland's AK-47, do you know what I mean? And that it causes a hell of a lot of damage. Um, it's It's a fortified wine that's made by monks in Devonshire at Buckfast Abbey, right? And uh, basically, Backfast Tonic Wine is responsible for most of Scotland's violent deaths, most of Scotland's violent crimes, and an innumerable, innumerable number of ugly, ugly babies as well. Yeah, it's properly serious though. But anyway, that's (laughs) a total side note there. Um, So yeah, let's get started with this. So this is episode 1. Uh, this podcast is going to be about the Romans. It's going to be about the Picts. It's going to be about the Scots. So, without further ado, here is a podcast about the Romans in Scotland. I hope you enjoy. Now, it's pretty. Uh, it's a pretty well-known fact that the Romans they were never able to conquer Scotland, and when it came to Ireland or Hibernia, as they referred to it as, uh, they didn't even bother their arse to try, uh, which is probably fair enough, do you know what I mean? Like, if you knew that there was a country out there that was full of Hibs fans, then you probably wouldn't bother your arse either, would you, do you know what I mean? They're inevitably going to defeat themselves anyway, you would just leave them to it, wouldn't you? I think it's amazing, though, that at one point in our history, Scotland, we were able to halt the most sophisticated, the most impressive, the most famous empire the world has ever known, we were able to halt them, stop them in their tracks, and now can't even beat Kazakhstan away from home. Do you know what I mean? How the, how the mighty have fallen, folks. How the mighty have fallen. And some historians, they believe that the, the Romans, the reason they couldn't subdue Scotland is because of its wild and rugged terrain. Uh, other people think it's because the Romans were terrified of the, the native people of Scotland at that time, the Picts, or the Picti. As the Romans referred to them as uh, the Picti, Picti basically means painted people, and the reason why the Romans called them the Picti is because apparently they would ride into battle bollock naked, covered head to toe in tribal tattoos and war paint. But it, it's not a theory that I subscribe to. That one, you know, like if the if the Romans really were intimidated by you know fake tan, full frontal nudity, and tribal tattoos, they never made it past Newcastle, would they? You know what I mean? Now, I reckon the real reason why the Romans could never truly conquer Scotland is because of midges. Yeah. Now, if you don't know what a midge is, folks, uh, a midge is kind of like a, a smaller and more aggressive version of a mosquito. So a more Scottish mosquito, basically, right? They cause carnage in this country, midges. Midges cost the Scottish tourism industry millions and millions of pounds every single year. They are by far and away the most irritating thing in Scotland. And listen, I don't say that lightly, do you know what I mean? This is a country that gave the world bagpipes, for Christ's sake. Like, we know how to annoy folk. I'm telling you, though, you would rather be waterboarded than go for a 40-minute stroll in the West Highlands on a warm, damp summer's day, right? Highland chieftains, what they would do is they would tie up their enemies in bogs and fields and leave them there for days upon end to be feasted upon by midges. Properly, properly horrific stuff. There's something like 130 odd trillion midges in Scotland every single summertime, right? And of those 130 trillion midges, only the female midge bites, right? So the male midge, right, he just goes out and he just eats flowers, fertilizes the female's eggs, and then has the common sense to die immediately afterwards. That's the world that my fiancée wants to live in. I can assure you that, folks. One whereby I bring her flowers and provide the bobby, then I just fucking die. That's the world that she wants to live in. But I'm telling you this, the Romans would have came up here, they would have seen, they would have faced off against these people who are quite willing to stand out there in the open air, bollock naked, getting feasted alive by midges, and they'd have gone bollocks to this, and they'd have gone straight back over Hadrian's wall. Honestly, God, Hannibal had to march elephants across the Alps, to defeat the Romans. It turns out that. All they really needed to do was just. Get some midges. Now it was a common misconception that the, the Romans. Never actually made it to Scotland. Um, when the. When the Roman invasion of Britain began in 43 AD under the Emperor Claudius, by 79 AD, England and Wales had been all but subdued by the Roman governor of Britain, Agricola. So in 84 AD, Agricola, he marches a, a huge Roman army north to take on the Caledonii, uh, which was the collective term that the Romans used to describe the Pictish tribe's in Scotland at that time. It's where the term Caledonia comes from. Um, so he takes this huge Roman army, which had, uh, was consisted of at least three uh, legions, had kind of heavy, heavy cavalry, all that kind of stuff. And he marches the north to take on these barbaric Caledonians, which were led by Calgacus. So you had Calgacus versus Agricola, which I think kind of sounds like the Battle of the Washing Up detergents doesn't it do you know what I mean like who can take on stubborn stains the most uh, just silly Bangs going off left right and centre like the the, the fairy apple could maybe just riding in a motorcycle like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings but they they, they they face off against each other at the Battle of Mons Grampius in 84 AD, and the battle would have taken off, uh, would have taken place, sorry, somewhere close to where Huntley is in Aberdeenshire now. And it was a, a huge, huge battle. And it was a devastating loss for the Caledonians and a announcing win for the the Romans. Uh, apparently, apparently in his uh, in his speech, in his pre-battle speech, Calgacus gave this uh, gave this speech denouncing Rome and its supposed civilization, inverted commas, just going, you know, we don't want any of that stuff in Scotland, you know, public sanitation, democracy, infrastructure, none of that for us, please. You know what I mean? 2,000 years on, we're still waiting on the A9 getting dueled, for Christ's sake. I think the Romans could help us out with that. It um, And also, aye, he used the term freedom, for the first time, which is a, a term that would go on for millennia to hang over us. Um, and of course, he did, he did, he, he set the standard, didn't he, for, for millennia to come. He used the term freedom, even though 2,000 years later, we still didn't have it. Um, and it's just, it's, it's the classic Scottish example. Be very well-meaning, give a good speech, shout freedom, and then get your arse handed to you. Do you know what I mean? That's, that is the Scottish way. But despite the, the, the Romans' um, victory... At Mons Grampius, there was to be no Highland um, subjugation or subjugation of the Highlands to come. Um, they installed a huge fort at Inchtutal, which is uh, just on the banks of the Dee, near Dunkeld. Um, but it was abandoned before it would even be completed. And by 122 AD, the Romans they had withdrawn to uh, to Hadrian's Wall, which is a 73 mile wall that was built between the, the Tyne and the, the River Tyne in the east and the Solway Firth in the west. Um, Hadrian's Wall, very, very famous, uh, is apparently the inspiration as well for the wall in Game of Thrones, which, you know, makes complete sense to me. Like, on one side of the wall, you've got civilization, and then on the other side of the wall, you've got these pasty white murderous fucking maniacs, you know what I mean? That makes complete sense. To a Scottish person, I can tell you that. It's also apparently the inspiration for Donald Trump's wall. Although um, well, the biggest difference being that Trump actually wants to be on the side of the wall that has the white people in it, you know. Um, but yeah, so uh the, the Romans they have another pop um in 138 AD. And this time they managed to, to make it as far north as um kind of where the, the modern day central belt of Scotland is. Uh, and they, they re-established the, the northern frontier of their of their empire. They built the, ha- uh, sorry, not Hadrian's Wall, the Antonine Wall, which stretched from the River Forth in the east to the, uh, the Clyde in the west. Now, the Antonine Wall it would have been four metres wide, uh, four metres tall. It had 16 different fortifications along it, and it was made of turf and grass with huge ditches dug either side of it. Um, presumably they made it out of grass because they thought the Caledonians struggled with, day fever, I don't know, I feel like they, they should have known better than to try and protect England with a wall, you know what I mean, uh, if you try and protect England with a wall, we've got Lee Griffiths, he'll just curl a free kick round that bad boy, Nay bother at all, absolutely fine, same spot twice in a row, we'll do that, um, and again their, their attempt at, at staying in Scotland, it didn't really last all that long Um, the Antonine Wall lasted about 30 odd years by 161 AD the Romans had abandoned the Antonine Wall and by 180 AD they were expelled from Scotland completely leaving Scotland and the tribes that lived there at that time to their own devices who were the native tribes of Scotland we've already mentioned the Picts and the Picts they were the they were descended from the indigenous Bronze Age people who lived in Scotland so the, the people who Built, for example, the standing stone structures that we see, Uh, the most impressive of which are probably the Calanus standing stones in the Isle of Lewis. The Calanus standing stones in the Isle of Lewis, uh, they were kind of, they think that they were built in stages and they would have started at around 3000 BC and they were definitely completed by 2000 BC. Now that's 1000 years before Stonehenge. So yeah, fuck you, Stonehenge. Our stones were standing before yours were even bloody crawling yeah take that and nobody really knows what these standing stones were erected for some people believe that they were ancient burial sites some people believe that they were places of worship that they could even have been huge astronomical structures or maybe they were just put there to mark out the rules of duck duck goose or to show people where the really really old dogging sites were we don't no, but it's on many of Scotland's island communities that we see a lot of the Neolithic and Bronze Age examples of civilization. So, for example, in Orkney, there's a the very, very famous example of Scarabray. Scarabray is a, a Neolithic kind of late Stone Age um, village. It's the, the best preserved example of a Neolithic civilization in all of Northern Europe. And people would have inhabited Scarabray in Orkney between 3,100 BC and 2,600 BC. And it is why people in Orkney and on Scotland's island communities continue to uphold a kind of Neolithic Stone Age way of life and practices. So, for example, right, I lived on the Isle of Lewis for a year, back in uh, 2009. And in 2009, in Stornoway, they still had a Woolworths and a Wimpy. So, a pretty old school, I'm sure you'd agree. And so the Picts, they were the descendants of these uh, native Bronze Age people. And Pictland, it stretched from Fife all the way up to the north of Scotland. So the Picts were really the predominant people of Scotland at that time. But this is the Montebank history of, of Scotland, it's not the monobank history of Pictland, is it? So where do where do the Scots come in? Where does the Scot and Scotland come from? Well, the Scots they begin to arrive from Ireland um, between the the fifth and sixth centuries, and the Scots kingdom was Dalriada, is where modern day Argyll is situated in the kind of Inner Hebrides, and their power base was a, a huge fortress called Danad. um It's near where modern day Gilpid is. And it's here where ancient Scots kings would be crowned. And um, if, you were, if you were being crowned, they would nominate kings back in those days. But if you're being crowned the Scots king, you would have to climb to the top of the Danad and there was a footprint that they carved in the rock and the Scots kings would have to place their foot in the footprint and then look out over their kingdom as a marriage between them and their kingdom, it's kind of like the, the the Scottish version of Excalibur, it's not It's not quite as exciting, it's a wee bit more accessible, perfect as well if you've got a foot fetish, I don't know what happened if your foot didn't fit in the footprint, if you like turned into a massive pumpkin or anything like that, but if you do come to visit Scotland and you know, you, you're excited by carvings in the rock of footprints, you can actually go and visit Danad to this day, um, it's on the roads between Oban and Loch Gilpid and you just climb up to the top. I, I really think what they should do, actually, is when you get your first cap for Scotland, they should make you go up there and stick your foot in the footprint. Anyway, um, one of the the big influences of the Scots was Christianity um, because Christianity came over to Scotland from Ireland as well. And it was the spread of Christianity that really saw or was played a big part, at least, and the Picts and the Scots finally coming together as they both decided to abandon their kind of crazy Celtic pagan gods and instead, you know, take the sensible decision of worshipping a guy who could walk on water and was resurrected from the dead. Made much more sense, much more sense. And Saint Columba, he's the guy that's credited with bringing Christianity to Scotland. Now, Saint Columba, he was in a—he was an Irish monk. He was actually banished from Ireland for going a wee bit mental in battle. So he thought to himself, "Right, I'll go—I'll <laughs> go to a country where my unhinged overaggression will be truly appreciated." And that's how he ended up in Scots, in Scotland. Sorry, trying to convert the people here. And there is a fantastic story of uh, Saint Columba and the Loch Ness monster, right? So Saint Columba, he was out converting folk as is as. Was his thing, right, and uh, he's on the banks of Loch Ness, and he comes across these two guys who are on the the banks of Loch Ness burying their pal, right, so Columba goes up, and he's like, what happened to your mate, lads, and the boys tell him that uh, he was out swimming in the loch, and he was attacked by a great beast, right, now, um, instead of apprehending what was quite clearly two guys who had just murdered their pal, right, Columba, what he does is he goes out onto the loch. And when the monster appears, Columba makes the sign of the cross and suddenly Nessie, the great beast, he sh- he shites it, swims away, swims to the bottom of the loch and we never see him ever again. That's it. He's been hiding out ever since. The original self-isolator, the Loch Ness monster, you know what I mean? The guy's been doing it for 1,500 years. Now, I know what you're thinking, folks. The real problem with that story is normally beasts are attracted to the side of the cross, aren't they? But I don't know what to tell you. And the Scots kings, they allowed Columba to, to set up a monastery on the Isle of Iona in the Inner Hebrides. And um, and this would become the epicentre. This would become the centre of the Celtic church. It's a really, really special place in Scotland. It's where all of kind of the, the ancient Scots kings are buried. If you ever get a chance to go there, I'd definitely recommend it. And... Um, Setting up monasteries was like, that was all the rage back then. That's what they just loved. Everyone just wanted to set up a monastery, right? And there's a brilliant story of these two monks, St. Mullig and St. Moloch, right? And they both want to set up a monastery on the Isle of Lismore in uh, in Loch Linney. It's between kind of like, uh, it's north of Oban north of the Isle of Mill, and they decide that the what they're going to do is they're going to have a rowing race, right? And whoever reaches the island first, whoever whoever touches the island first, whoever makes makes land first, will get to set up their monastery, right? Now, seeing that he is losing the race, what St Molag does is he cuts off his finger and he throws it to the shore in order to win the race. Now, I've no idea how this counts as a legitimate, like, win, you know, I've never, I've never seen Sir Steve Redgrave lobbing off, it, chopping off his own finger and lobbing it into the River Thames. But I'm telling you, it would certainly make the boat race more interesting. Like, how good would the Paralympics be if we had folk sawing off their own limbs, chopping off their own legs, and throwing them across the finish line in order to win the two hundred meters? It'd be absolutely fantastic. There's actually apparently a similar origin story in uh, in Northern Ireland, right, where they had a rowing race to decide who the next King of Ulster would be. So exact same rules apply here, right? Whoever touches the shore first, they get to be king. And uh, one of the guys realises that he's losing. So he chops off his own hand and throws it to the shore in order to win the race. It's an incredible piece of foresight from that guy, I must say. Do you know what I mean? Like, he must have known that in centuries to come, finding body parts on the shores of Northern Ireland would become incredibly commonplace and this is, is one of the stories behind if you look at the flag of Northern Ireland the red hand of Ulster that's that's what the, the mark is the guy who chopped off his hand and chucked it to the shore um, I think it's a very good indication of the differences between Irish and Scottish people do you know what I mean like at no point did that Irish guy consider that he could just chop a finger off like the Scottish guy do you know, he, he he had to take the whole hand you know that that's the real difference between Ireland and Scotland right there in Strathclyde, you had, uh, which, which by the way, in modern day Scotland is the the kind of area in and around Glasgow, um, you had a Britonic Welsh-speaking kingdom, which makes perfect sense, you know, because Glaswegians do struggle with vowels. Uh, it would come a surprise to no one that they're descended from Welsh speakers. Um, you had, yeah, you had the, a Britonic Welsh-speaking kingdom, the kingdom of Strathclyde, that had its um, its power base in Dumbarton and its spiritual home in Given, which to be fair, if you are looking for a part of Scotland uh, where the people identify as Britons and are speaking a language that you have very little chance of understanding, then Given would be a good place to go about doing that, you know. And in the Lothians, uh, which is kind of the, the other side of the country, Edinburgh, there was another Britonic Welsh-speaking tribe called the Gododen. They were known as the Votadini to the Romans. And they had their power base in Dunedin, modern-day Edinburgh. And one of the oldest written annals in Scottish history is a, a poem written in Welsh called The Gododen. And the Gododen tells the story of um, the Gododen feasting and drinking in Edinburgh um, under the leadership of their, their leader Mindendog the Great. They basically they they drink and eat for a year and then they ride out into battle to take on the Northumbrian Angles at the Battle of Carrick in uh, Catterick, sorry, in 598 AD. It's a very, very similar approach that my Sunday League team used to take, actually. I think I feel like it's probably a similar approach to lockdown as well. Like, we've had a couple of months of eating and drinking, and we're going to have to go back to work at some point. But it was the Angles that would have the last laugh on um, on the Gododin. In 638 AD, they besieged and, uh, and managed to conquer Dunedin. And Edinburgh is the part of Scotland that probably gets cited as being the, the most Anglified part of Scotland. Like, it uh, gets a lot of jibes, particularly from the West Coast, from Glaswegians, you know, for just being, they, they, they refer to it as like England with tartan, you know. And, and Edinburgh folk, they've got a bit of a reputation for being, you know, a wee bit stuck up, a wee bit middle class, an air of bobbaggery about them, if you will. And, uh, like, do you know what I mean? There's a reason why Harry Potter was written in Edinburgh and not Glasgow. Let's just put it that way. Do you know what I mean? Like, Because, my God, if those kids in Harry Potter are not middle-class folks, the only thing those kids are missing when they go to Hogwarts is their gluten-free pack lunches. Do you know what I mean? I mean if <laughs> you'd never have Harry Potter being written in any other part of Scotland, a Glaswegian Harry Potter would be amazing. But it just wouldn't work. Do you know what I mean? I can tell you this. If you were walking through Glasgow Central Station, right, and you came across a group of Glaswegian school kids who were running headfirst into a platform wall, you wouldn't even bat an eyelid. That's just another day in Glasgow, that, you know. Putting the, striding down the aisle at Hogwarts, sticking on the sorting cap, which tells Harry whether he's a Rangers fan or a Celtic fan. You know, like, suddenly battling Voldemort's the least of this kid's problems. I do you know what, Edinburgh doesn't help itself. You know, it gets tagged with the whole Anglify thing. You know, it's got a lot of, I don't know, like, private schools and, and you'll see people playing cricket. Fucking cricket. Here, you know, and PIMS as well. Like, folk drink, well, you'll see that in Edinburgh. Like, what on earth is PIMS? How bad is a drink that you've got to put your entire fruit bowl into it before it becomes any way drinkable? So, Edinburgh is, but it's it's, it's, it's like one of these things, isn't it? You know, like, with every stereotype, there's, there's normally at least a semblance of truth in it. And Edinburgh actually is the most anglified part of Scotland. Because um, from 638 AD, for the next 400-odd years, Edinburgh was controlled by the Northumbrian Angles. It was essentially English. Um, it was a nightmare. You couldn't get square sausage for shit. It was a terrible, terrible time to be alive. And so when you think of, of Scotland between the 7th and 11th centuries, right, you've got a very, very... You've got, you, you've got a mixed bag of kind of different cultures and ethnicities so for example like in the in the north of Scotland in Pictland you've got the Scottish Picts right and then in the west you've got the Scots who are actually Irish so you've got the Scottish Picts you've got the Irish Scots then in Strathclyde in the southwest you've got the Welsh and then in Edinburgh and the Lothians you've got the English I mean, is it any any wonder that Scottish people are constantly and forever fighting against each other? Like, essentially, we're we're descended from what is a scaled-up version of an all-inclusive resort in Benidorm, for Christ's sake. So that brings us to the end of episode one of the Montebank History of Scotland podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, If you've stuck it out this far, good on you. Um, If you would like to contribute... To the podcast, if you think, do you know what, Daniel, I really enjoyed that. Uh, uh, I would buy you a coffee if I could in person. Then you can do so uh, through the usual channels with these things, with the podcasts. I have a Patreon account and a Buy Me A Coffee account. Uh, You can find me on there. I'm on there as at Montebank Tours. Should be pretty straightforward. And what I'm trying to do each week in the podcast is I'm trying to raise enough money to send someone who is deserving of a bottle of whiskey. Um, and if you are listening in America, by the way, I'm I'm talking about proper whiskey, not that cat piss you drink over in, over there, right? Uh, Scotch, malt whiskey. Um, so basically, it could be someone who's like, uh, you know, during this COVID thing, it could be an NHS staff worker. Um, it could be a, a frontline key worker. It could be a patient parent. It could just be a thoroughly sound person who you think deserves a bottle of whiskey. Um, if you follow me on the Patreon page, on Buy Me A Coffee, um, or on my any of my social media, so Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, I'm on there, at Montebank Tours. Leave me a comment on any of those um, platforms and just say who you think deserves a bottle of whiskey and why and what I'll do is I'll pick someone at random and I will send them a bottle and what I'm trying to do as well is I'm trying to pick a whiskey that actually relates to something that we were talking about in the podcast today so today we were talking about the the battle of Mons Grampius, which is probably the the most significant thing that occurred of all the events I'm talking about throughout the podcast um Today, so the battle, the battle of Mon, Mons Grampius, that huge set to between the Romans and the Caledonians, it occurred. They reckon close to around the town of Huntley, which is in um, which is in whisky terms in the Speyside region of Scotland. So there's loads and loads of great distilleries to choose from. I'm going to go for the Glendronach, which is the distillery that's closest to Huntley. Uh, it's a Speyside distillery, but it's a it's a fantastic. It's probably more like a, a Highland malt. In terms of its style, they use sherry casks. It's a really, really delicious, uh, kind of fruity, rich dram. So if that sounds like something you think someone uh, deserves and would enjoy, please leave a comment, get in touch. Thanks so, so much for listening. Uh, I do hope that you tune in next week. Uh, Episode two will be all about how these disparate tribes, all these different tribes of Scotland, managed to come together to to create a country. Thanks so much again for listening. My name's been Daniel. Cheers. Bye-bye.